You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. As a cybersecurity firm, we have a continuously ongoing research effort into various campaigns that we see. We track threat actors across the board, and we're always just watching for trends that may be emerging within cybersecurity tactics, tools, and procedures. That's Eric Cornelius. He's chief product architect at BlackBerry. The research we're discussing today is titled Decade of the Rats, novel APT attacks targeting Linux, Windows, and Android. Can you give us some of the background here? I mean, when it comes to rats, what's the underlying history? Well, remote access tools uh, have a very long history. Ever since computers started getting networked together, there has been this kind of underlying desire to maintain access to, to other people's networks that has existed within humanity. And one of the key things is you don't want to be redoing work over and over again. So once you go to the effort to compromise a system, one of your first line priority items is going to be to maintain persistence. So enter the rat, right? A tool that is able to be installed on a system to give you long-term persistent access to that machine. Hmm. Well, let's take a look at some of the research that you all presented here. What are some of the specific areas you're exploring? Yes, I think there's a few novel points to this. So first, let me point out that the threat group we're looking at here is nowhere near new. Uh, the WinNTI umbrella group, if you will, has been studied by 
numerous research organizations over the years. But what's novel about our discovery is that we have identified a couple areas that we as an industry just haven't been looking at seriously enough. This is specifically focusing on compromise of Linux machines, servers, and also the mobile devices. You know, BlackBerry published a report back in September that was focused extensively on mobile malware. Again, just kind of as a call to action to the security industry where there seems to be this belief, if you will, that mobile malware, Linux malware, it's not really a thing. It's not something we need to focus our time on. And mm. we're suggesting here that that's not true, right? And that as an industry, it's, you're correct. We don't see a lot of mobile malware, but our hypothesis is that's because we're not looking for it. So now that we've started to look into some of these areas and shine the light, we're realizing that there's a bit more activity there than, than any of us had realized. Yeah, and you spend quite a bit of time in the report uh, discussing the things that you've discovered when it comes to Linux machines. Um, take me through, what, do, what are you researching here? Sure, I think, the again, the key takeaway here is that the threat actor in question, and this WinNTI group, we, we call them an umbrella group because they're more of an organization than an individual actor or team that has different individuals coming and going over time, but they maintain a shared set of tools. There are several groups. We identify a new group who specializes in targeting Linux systems. And again, this is germane for a number of reasons. One, uh, why does it matter? Why is it interesting? Uh, we call out in the report that something like 75% of the internet's infrastructural backbone is running Linux, which is a, an interesting statistic. But two, in most enterprises as we know them today, Linux tends to be running on the most critical servers, those that demand the highest uptime, the most reliability. So if you're an adversary and you're looking to maintain persistent access to a target environment, targeting a machine that you have a relatively high assurance is going to be online nearly all the time, that just makes logical sense, right? A lot of the more common TTPs for targeting individuals, you know, send a spear phishing email, somebody clicks it, and now you're on John Q. Random's laptop, who may or may not have it on, uh, or connected to the network when you want to, to execute some portion of your mission. So targeting these Linux servers, it just makes sense. Secondly, what we're trying to call out is that within enterprises, we tend to see less emphasis put on securing these Linux devices from enterprises writ large. And this is, it shows itself in a number of different ways. One, because of just the overall market share of Linux, it's substantially smaller. There are naturally a smaller number of expert practitioners who have a a real-world practical skill set that can be applied to the Linux devices, but there's, you know, also a representatively small amount of vendor-available tools for securing Linux. That's not to say there's none. There definitely are some, but the lion's share of security resources, both provided by the vendor community and dollars spent by enterprises, tend to be focused on the Windows core of the network, which makes sense, you know, proportionally given their numbers. However, in terms of impact to the organization. What we're suggesting here is that there are other avenues of attack that have the same, if not higher level of impact to the organization that we're, we're not putting enough resources on from a security perspective. Hmm. And what specifically are we talking about here? What are some of the things that you're seeing? So from a, a little bit more technical perspective, again, we focused on this one particular threat group here. And... Some of the novel approaches we saw, obviously, we were seeing kernel-side rootkit activity, right? And that's not notable from a number of a number of reasons. One, it's relatively sophisticated to create a kernel-side rootkit, but two, it's also pretty unlikely for a security practitioner to take remediation action against that 
if a particular module is suspected. The reasons for that are, let's say, for example, you are a junior administrator, right? In a lot of cases, you are not the active administrator day-to-day -day of a particular Linux machine is not the individual who built and deployed that system originally. You've inherited these machines as perhaps, you know, career changes occur, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And so therefore, you're not maybe as intimately familiar with it. And when you see a kernel module that may or may not be suspect, you are going to be hesitant to unload that module because who wants to be the person who brought down a, you know, banking web server, for example, or a critical file share server within an organization for something you're not certain about? Secondly, just given the lack of security tools, it's very difficult to identify these modules in the first place. Uh, on the Windows side of things, some novel approaches we've seen that I think are really cool. And again, they show the sophistication of the threat actor where this particular group originally gained notoriety because they were breaking into gaming companies and stealing their private code signing certificates, signing their rootkits with that. They've gone one step further into a really interesting area, which is to do the same thing, only now they're compromising adware companies and stealing their signing certificates uh, to subsequently sign the, the malicious rats. That's really interesting because in a time where you have things like next generation antivirus that's going to scan these things and flag them as being blatantly malicious, uh, you know, a lot of the technology out there, our technology, for example, doesn't matter who you signed your code with. If it's bad, we're going to find it. So the administrator now sees a flag on this rat. The administrator goes and looks at it and they go, oh, it's adware. It's signed by an adware company. Yes, it's bad, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, your typical security administrator now sees how many gazillion alerts per day, right? Something they see as adware, that's going to the bottom of the queue. Not to say that they're never going to get to it, just they're not going to get to it right now. And that observation by this threat actor just shows their, you know, it shows their wit, right? How adaptable they really are to understanding how we as an industry operate. Therefore, when the assumption is, ah, oh, this is just adware, I'll get to it eventually, we're extending the time that they have persistent access to our environments. Yeah, that really is a fascinating insight, that, that way to, uh, to buy time, to take advantage of, uh, I guess, you know, as you say, a security professional's perception of adware, how it's sort of uh, ubiquitous and so uh, doesn't really, you know, set off fireworks in their mind. Precisely. Um, let's dig into some of the things you found when it came to uh, some uh, Android malware. What can you share with us there? Yeah, the Android component is equally interesting. And again, we drew some some corollaries, right? We're not, we didn't outright say, hey, this is a duck, but we said we've identified something that's got webbed feet that are orange and a bill and makes these quacking noises, <laughs> right? And what I'm alluding to there is there's a, a toolkit available that's widely considered to be one of the most effective exploitation frameworks out there that is i mean dare i say masquerading as a as a company that offers these wares for sale on the on the open market but as we started to look at the actual apk structure what we saw was that the the android rootkit and this this tool set that seems to be openly available are so structurally similar that the likelihood of that accidentally happening, I mean, I didn't calculate it out statistically, but I think I might get hit by lightning twice before I see <laughs> APKs with this level of similarity. The interesting huh. bit being that the, the actual state-sponsored malware was stood up years before this company became available. So what we're suggesting in the report is that there's obviously some relationship here, right? Did the state sponsor 
state-sponsored group start this company as a shell organization? Did they otherwise license the code? We didn't go pulling that thread as deeply as you know we probably will over time, but it was enough that we decided that we wanted to call it out and make it publicly known. Yeah, that I mean that timeline is fascinating, and I I mean is it is it fair to say that that uh, makes it so that it's worth shining a, a brighter light or digging a little more closely into that commercially available tool? Yeah, I mean I think so. Again, the the body of knowledge that we as an industry have is being continually added to by various research organizations, right? No individual company or research group has the amount of resources necessary to pull all of the threads that are interesting in the cybercrime underworld, if you will, right? And there's just so much activity going on across the entire continuum of the the hacker spectrum from low-level attackers all the way up to nation-state-sponsored activity that there's just no way we could be fully comprehensive. And so naturally, the industry builds on work done by one another. And we're putting this out there to the community to say, hey, we think this is interesting uh, in, in hoping that someone else will kind of pick up that that ball and run with it. One of the things you point out is uh, the likelihood that uh, the groups who are doing this work are could very well likely be contractors who are working for the Chinese government. Sure. So again, we're putting our, our caveats out there, but I'll tell you the sort of observations we made that lead us to believe that these are not highly trained government operatives. And what we see is uh, a high level of skill. Right? We do see a high level of skill, a high level of adaptability, creativity, all of the things you expect to see in sophisticated threat actor groups. However, what we also see is um, a more substantial lack of operational security that we would not expect to see from a trained government operative. Right. And so mm-hmm. you're talking about just there's too many fingerprints is effectively what I'm saying. Right. There's too much, too many names in the paths, too many easily traceable facts in the infrastructure that they're using. There's just not enough credence given to secrecy for us to believe that this is an actual government organization. However, they are clearly acting in the interests of the government. Ergo, we conclude that this is probably a civilian contracting network that is paid to do this this work, which provides uh, plausible deniability on behalf of the actual government and say, no, this is just a rogue criminal group doing whatever it is they do. But when you look at the activities that they're undertaking and you pull the thread on some of the compromises, the data that's coming back and the type of data we see being taken, uh, or at least facilitated the types of data across these uh, tool infrastructures that we've identified and torn apart, it's not immediately monetizable. And so you have to beg the question then, if this really is some random threat actor group, why are they targeting this specific type of data, right? And how, how are they going to monetize it? And if you look at whose interest that's most likely to be, these are breadcrumbs in a larger campaign. And the I would call it the most likely benefactor is the government in this case. Yeah. One of the other interesting things you point out here in the research is um, – the shift in command and control infrastructure, the type of uh, stuff that they're using there. Can you give us some of the details when it comes to that? Yeah, in this particular case, there is nothing really novel, just that what we're seeing is sort of an extensible framework, if you will. So think about it this way. These adversaries who are doing this work, this is their actual day job, right? And every company that they compromise They have to keep track of that. They have to keep track of their status on each project that they're working on. And in this particular case, the Linux infrastructure, they actually had to recompile the toolkit for 
for each specific version of the target, right? Because, I mean, the Linux kernel is a fairly sophisticated thing. You don't know what modules are going to be there. You don't know exactly what kernel version is going to be running there. So when you approach the target, you can dynamically assert the or identify the infrastructure, recompile appropriately, and then deploy. And so they just built this pretty nice automation framework to help them keep track of all that stuff, do the do the compilation, deploy the package to the target, uh, and just kind of make that management easier to scale. So what are your recommendations here? What are the take-homes from the report in terms of organizations uh, better protecting themselves? Sure. So I think my main takeaway, and you know, I spent a lot of time in the field as a practitioner and spent a lot of time with organizations. And one of the things I've always preached over time is that 95% of cybersecurity is hygiene, right? It's just really staying on top of understanding your network baseline, who's talking to who, monitoring data flows, right? A real obvious sign of compromise is looking at the ratio of bytes out to bytes in, right? And this may not be true in particular, obviously on like file servers, it's not going to be true, but for general civilian machines, a huge amount of data leaving typically doesn't occur, right? You send a get request to the internet that says, give me a cat video. The internet gives you a cat video. The data transfer is very asymmetric. And focusing on these fundamental tenets of how networks are organized will help organizations to identify new types of attacks. The second key takeaway here is that every asset has importance. And while we focus on our traditional user base, because I mean, imagine your sales force, you've got all these people getting on airplanes, going to -to face-to-face meetings, doing a lot of work at like the Marriott bar in places that are generally not renowned for their security. So we focus a lot on them. And maybe we don't look so much at the infrastructure that we believe to be isolated, maybe within a DMZ or some other type of subnet infrastructure. We get this feeling that there's more security there. And in this particular case, the threat actors have shown a high aptitude for compromising these machines, even within Uh, buried network segments, and they're able to route the data out. And so we really do need to give effort to to every machine. Yeah, I have to say I'm I'm left uh, scratching my head at this, uh, at the notion, as you say, that that it's these critical infrastructure, if you will, these Linux machines um, that have, uh, I suppose, an outsized amount of of vulnerability. Can, can you help me understand that? I, I guess it's surprising to me that, um, that that would be the case, that there wouldn't be uh, more attention paid to these particular machines when they're doing the important work they're doing. Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's an outsized amount of vulnerability on the machines, right? All code was written by people, ergo all code is, is fallible. Hmm. So I think if you look at just a number of vulnerabilities per lines of code, all things are basically equal, right? There's mm-hmm. tons of studies about open source, closed source, vendor produced. It doesn't matter. There's vulnerabilities everywhere. Mm. What we are suggesting is that due to the criticality of these machines, a successful compromise of one has a substantially higher impact to an organization than a successful compromise of John Q. Random's laptop. Right? Now, it's not to say that they don't get the correct John Q. Random and there's some crown jewel data on it. I'm not suggesting that at all. You, everybody gets lucky. But these machines we know are, they tend to be clearing houses for data. They tend to have high uptime. They tend to have vast amounts of access. They're high value targets, right? And we do as an industry need to pay a little bit more attention. And I'm not trying to say that the industry is not paying attention to Linux. That's not at all true. We definitely are. Hmm. But proportionally, and when you go, just go talk to your average security practitioner who's been out of college for say five to seven years, kind of the 
the two standard deviations of the workforce, the younger people, you're not going to find a lot of highly skilled Linux practitioners out there. So we just need to do do a better job of training and building up these skill sets, particularly as things like cloud take off. You know, you're, we're going to see a lot more influence from the Linux operating system over the next few years. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, is it fair to say that the the reliability that the fact that these Linux machines run, you know, 24 seven without uh, without complaining uh, kind of puts them a little bit out of sight, out of mind. Oh, definitely. And I know many uh, Linux sysadmin who pride themselves on their uptime. So they they tend to run for a long time, which, again, when you've got a resident compromise, that's a very good thing for a bad guy. Our thanks to Eric Cornelius from BlackBerry for joining us. The research is titled Decade of the Rats, Novel APT Attacks Targeting Linux, Windows, and Android. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.